Okay, it's uh, three or four minutes after seven. We probably ought to go ahead and, as we do get started, I wanted to point out that I've got 13 books on the Trinity that I have had checked out for three or four months. And they're all, they're all checked back in. Ron has put the cards back in them. They're, they're all here and I would, if you're at the slight bit interested, I would encourage you to take a look at them and maybe check one out tonight. This is a real good, uh, I would call it kind of an introduction. It's, uh, uh, very readable by Calvin Beisner on the Trinity. Here's one that's kind of technical. It's called the Oxford Handbook of the Trinity. It's uh, uh, articles by a number of theologians. That gets pretty technical. Uh, here's an intermediate ver- uh, textbook called The Quest for the Trinity by Stephen Holmes. He's a, he's a Scottish guy, and uh, this is one of my favorites. There's one here by uh, uh, Malcolm Yarnell, who's just over here in Fort Worth. Uh, Ron, Ron has been communicating with him, and so have I uh, on Twitter. And this is a new book by him, and it's 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 uh, talking about the Trinity in a little different way. He goes back and says, "You can see the Trinity in Scripture where you've never seen it before. All you got to do is look." And so he talks about the different places and different ways the Trinity shows up in the Scripture. So that's a very good one. Uh, Malcolm Yarnell, he's a professor over at uh, South uh, Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth. This is one is called The Father, Son, and the Spirit, The Trinity and John's Gospel by Scott Swain and Andreas Kostenberger. Scott Swain's another guy that Ron and I have been communicating with on Twitter. He's a professor at Westminster, California. Uh, here's one that uh, Tom... No, that isn't it. Where is it? Here it is. The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders is one that Tom Wright specifically recommends. It's very readable. It's it's almost devotional in nature uh, because as you read it, you find yourself being pulled into worship when he talks about the Trinity and the deep things of God. So I would recommend that one. That's a pretty re- very readable one. So just to let you know, these books are now all checked back in. And uh, you're welcome to take a look at them afterwards. Okay, so as we get started here, Let's just review last week. We spent some time talking about the significance of the Trinity to our daily lives and our church lives. And specifically, we talked about how the Trinity is not only, not only informs the gospel, it's actually the engine that drives the gospel. And we spent some time talking about that. We talked about how the Trinity shapes our prayers and how, we, how God has revealed himself to us through the Son in the Spirit, and we return our petitions to Him in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And and uh, there's there's no way you can actually conduct prayer, which is divine conversation with God, without an awareness of the Trinity. And then we talked about how the Trinity is the ground of our worship. And uh, Jim Hummel pointed out not only the ground of our worship, but the ground of our our community, the ground of our communion with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we went over those things, and we can't redo it today, but I'm just calling those to mind. And uh, we, we acknowledge that even though the Trinity is ultimately a, a mystery, Scripture urges us to know God. For example, in First Chronicles 28.9, Know the God of your Father and serve Him, even though this was talking to Solomon, with a whole heart and with a willing mind. We are encouraged to know God who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And then we spent some time talking about the word person. And I hope this was new to some of you uh, because I think it's important. And that is the word person referring to the Trinity is, does not connote the same things that the word person does to us as people. And the reason is because when we think of a person... We think of an individual being with his own individual personalized human nature, right? His own self-consciousness, his own will, his own whatever. 
But when we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about a God who is one being with one nature who subsists in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit do not have their own individual being. They do not have their own individual nature. They do not have their own individual will because God subsists in the three of them. They all share one will, one being. And so that's the point I was trying to make then. When we use the word person, in my mind, I always put quotes around it. Because if we think of a person like we are people, then you're automatically off on the wrong foot thinking about the Trinity. That was the big point that uh, I wanted to make last time. So before we get started, could I ask Al Angel to pray to open the class? This week, we're going to move ahead and talk about some of the criticisms of the doctrine of the Trinity. And these are, uh, I call them classic criticisms because they're usually the first to be thrown at you and they're used by all varieties of anti-Trinitarians. First of all, they will say that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible as if that is a weighty argument. We're going to talk about how that really doesn't carry much weight and we, we won't spend much time on dismissing that one. The next one is the Christian Trinity is self-contradictory. Now, admittedly, last week we talked about how in the end, we're all going to come to the point where we have to realize that there's a mystery associated with the Trinity and that we can never plumb its depths and that we have to say, in a sense, we can't fathom it. But that does not mean that we are not to seek to know God through His revelation. And what I will attempt to show you tonight, it is not self-contradictory, especially in a, in a technical sense, the way people throw that around they may not even know what they're saying but they'll say it's a contradiction because you're saying one equals three one plus one plus one equals one you know they'll say there's something wrong with all of that so we're going to talk about that and then they'll say the concept of the trinity is not biblical you don't really see it the words not in the bible you don't really see it clearly presented that way in the bible and so we're going to look at some verses tonight and then lastly, the charge is often made that the Trinity was invented in the 4th century and the early church knew nothing of it. Did I misspell a word? The church, the church, dang it, <laughs> knew nothing. My wife was, I should have had her proofread this. Spell check did that. No, it didn't. That's my fault. Uh, but but speak, speaking of my wife, she gave me my marching orders tonight. First of all, she said, enunciate. Use the black marker, not the blue, because it doesn't show up well. And at the end of class last week, you did not pray. So do it tonight. So, thank you, dear. Speaking of black markers, let me point out one thing that we talked about last night. And that is the tendency for, even though we are made in God's image, and before the fall that image was untarnished, after the fall that image in us is tarnished, twisted, we want to turn around and our natural tendency is to make God in our image. And so we pointed out last week this quote by Karl Barth, which sticks in my mind because it sounds unique. God is not man writ large. And what that means is we tend to acknowledge that God is infinitely greater, infinitely bigger, infinitely more perfect in every way, but at the bottom he's really like us, just a lot better. And that's what this means. We're trying to make God like us, only we're writing him real large. And that's... Uh, uh, that's a false way to look at it because, as I mentioned last week, one thing we have to do is realize that God is transcendent in the sense that He is totally other. He's totally other, not 
like us. And uh, we need to maintain the distinction between creator and creature. We are the creatures. We use creaturely language to try and talk about God, but we need to recognize that that is creaturely language that is not really a true picture. And so we have to recognize our fallible situation in trying to talk about God. So, just to remind you of that. And tonight we're going to really address the first three of these. And I'm going to save this one for next week, the last one about the Trinity being invented in the 4th century, because next week we're going to talk about the historical development of the doctrine, what prompted the early church fathers to to try and hammer out something specific about the Trinity. And so that's more of a historical overview. So we're going to answer this next week. We're going to try and talk about the first three this week. Okay, this is the first one. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But as you know, this is the case with numerous other words that we use in theology and Christianity whose concepts are clear in the Bible even though the words aren't used in the Bible. For example, atheism, that, that word's not used in the Bible. But you don't find people saying, well, atheism isn't a word in the Bible, so you can't talk about atheists. In fact, uh, in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So atheism is an example of a good theological uh, term to be used in discussing theology, but it's not in the Bible. The incarnation, as a matter of fact, is a word that we use, we ought to use, we ought to love it and, and think about it often, but the word itself is not in the Bible. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's what incarnation means. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was Christ becoming incarnate. And we talk about and celebrate the incarnation, but that Word is not in the Bible. Monotheism. Christianity is fundamentally a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God. And the teaching of Scripture is clear that there is only one God. Yet the word monotheism is not used in the Bible. The word rapture is the teaching that Christians who are alive when Jesus returns will be caught up. Rapture comes from the Latin word which was used to translate the the term caught up. And uh, so we talk about the rapture. Whether you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture or not, The rapture is a a biblical concept, and the word is not in the Bible. So why do people automatically say the word Trinity is not in the Bible? You say, yes, I know, but the concept is there, the teaching is there, and our triune God is presented there. The word Bible is not in the Bible. (laughs) That's a good one. Anyway, this, uh, this argument really doesn't carry a lot of weight, but yet you should know that it's often thrown out. Maybe think about how you might answer it. The next one is uh, talking about the Trinity as a self-contradiction or as a logical contradiction. That, that may have a little more weight, so we need to think about it a little bit and understand how the Trinity is not really a contradiction. It's often said that it's a logical contradiction by maintaining that God is one and three. And on the surface, when you say he's one and three, that's puzzling. But it's not a contradiction if you understand what's being said. And so we're going to look at that. The law of contradiction says that something A, whatever it is, we'll call it A, it cannot be A, and something that's not A at the same time, right? That'd be a contradiction. For example, I love you and I don't love you. That's an explicit contradiction, especially when we're talking about at the same time or in the same way. I can't say I love you at a certain time and in a certain sense and I don't love you at that same time and in that same sense. That's a logical contradiction. Well, John wrote 
the word of with God and the word was God. Right. Butch is married to Barb, but Barb is not married. Now that's an implicit contradiction. It's not explicit. It's implicit because the reason it's a contradiction is because we're calling upon a normal understanding of the word marriage, which by definition means if X is married to Y, then Y is married to X. So understanding, that's why it's implicit, not explicit. Understanding marriage for what it is, this is a contradiction, a logical contradiction. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. That's the first line of a famous novel by Dickens. What was it? Tale of Two Cities. On the surface, that may be an apparent contradiction. But if you read what he's saying, he goes on and makes comparisons like this in several other ways. He's saying that there is a sense in which this was the best of times. Society had learned so much and gained so much and enlightenment. But in another sense, how people were being treated, poverty, uh, uh, brutality, in another sense, it was the worst of times. So this is only an apparent contradiction that if you understand the context, it's not a contradiction because he's talking about two different senses. So some things can appear to be a contradiction, but if you learn the context, you say, well, that's not really a contradiction. But we want, to, we want to be able to say the Trinity is not a contradiction. So suppose I said there's only one God, and I also said there are three separate, distinct, and individual gods. There's one God, there's three gods. That's a contradiction. As a matter of fact, the first half of that uh, proposition is Christian. There's one God. The second half of that proposition is Mormon. There, there are other gods. There's more than one God. So that's a contradiction. That would be a, a logical contradiction. And suppose I said God is three distinct persons. And I said God is a unity of only one person. He's three persons and he's one person. That's a contradiction first half of that, God is three distinct persons, is biblical. The second part of that phrase is something you might hear from a Jehovah's Witness or Oneness, Pente- Oneness Pentecostals or Islam or, or various others. Now, what if I said there is only one who is God by nature and that one God subsists in three distinct persons? Well, I'm quilling with the word person. But God is, God is one by nature. He is one God who subsists in three persons, three subsistences, three hypostases. But that is Christian and that's not a contradiction because we are saying he's one in one sense and he's three in another sense. So... By, by explaining it that way, you can explain that it's not a logical contradiction. Both halves here are Christian, as, as, I, as I see it, even though, I'm, even though I quibble with the word person. So God is one in one sense, and he is eternally one in being and essence. God is three in another sense. He subsists in three distinct persons may not be easy to comprehend, but it's not a contradiction. Peter Kreeft uh, says this uh, uh, to answer his critics in this copy of his book, picture of his book. The doctrine of the Trinity does not say there is one God and three gods, or that God is one person and three persons, or that God has one nature and three natures. Those would indeed be self-contradictory. But the doctrine of the Trinity says there is only one God and only one divine nature, but this one God exists in three persons. That's a great mystery, but it's not a contradiction. Next is, uh, we'll tackle the subject of the, the uh, charge that it's not biblical. And we're going to spend some time looking at some verses 
that show that there is only one God. Scripture presents God as a plurality, even though uh, Don pointed out that Elohim can be a plural of intensification or a plural of majesty. We'll, we'll look at some of those scriptures. And that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are presented as distinct persons with the qualifications already noted of the Godhead. Each person is assigned the attributes of God. And we'll see that in these verses. So in fact, we need to recognize that the Trinity is a solution rather than a problem. So I think there's a stack of handouts on these first two tables that give the scripture verses that I'm going to be showing so that you don't have to try and jot them down. If you just kind of pass those around, there should be enough to go around. They're just, uh, it's just to save you from having to jot down these verses so you can take them home and look them up on your own. The unmistakable teaching of the Bible is there is one and only one God. This foundational element of Hebrew theology is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. What do they call this? The Shema, the Jewish Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so we need to acknowledge right off the bat that Christianity is a monotheistic religion. And the Bible teaches that there is only one God. In Isaiah 44.6, for example... Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, New Testament. Yet for us, there is but one God the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. I see that as an expansion of the Shema. One Lord. One Lord. God the Father and Jesus Christ. But there is still only one God. It could be pointing out the fact that this is the only one to whom Israel is to worship and adore, rather than specifying singularity, but nevertheless, yeah, that's, it's... That's, a, that's one of the better options as well. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or only the Lord. Right, only the one. He's only the one we worship. But still, that's the Shema. Now, there's plurality in the, of God that we see in verses in the Old Testament. And I'm going to go through these, uh, recognizing that the word us can be understood as a plural of majesty, as Don pointed out last week. But there's so many places where the plural of God is used in the Old Testament, I thought it was worth pointing out because in my mind, it at least leaves open the question. That God is a plurality. And, and to my way of thinking, it's, it's a hint. Thinking in a way of progressive revelation, it's a hint of what's to be revealed fuller in a fuller sense in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to uh, uh, Genesis 1, 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. You have God. You have God's Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep. And you have God's word, which as he spoke those words, it created light. So I see that as, as an early sign of the Trinity. Others may not. Genesis 3.22, 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Genesis 11:7. Come, let us go down there and there confuse their language. Remember that story? That they may not understand one another's speech. Isaiah 6:8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah 48:16 And now the Lord has sent me and his spirit. The Lord has sent me and his spirit. There's at least two in that. <laughs> and in the New Testament, recognizing now that we we have to understand that we're talking about the Godhead but we're using more than one name. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this, uh, this clearly became a standard, a standard way of baptizing, this phraseology, from the earliest days of the church. And what I want to point out is, we are not baptized in the name of God, but we are baptized in the name, singular, not the names, the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name. That is the name of God in the New Testament. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, for example. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. All three are mentioned and they're all referring to divinity. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Again, all three are mentioned together for this blessing that Peter's talking about. Jude 20, 21, 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So there's plurality in divinity. Now, we want to acknowledge that Jesus refers to the Father and the Spirit as distinct from himself. For example, in this passage from John 14, it's, I've highlighted in red the words that make it really evident. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he, the other helper, may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him, the Spirit, because he abides with you and will be in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So, Jesus recognizes that the Father is distinct from himself and the Holy Spirit is distinct from himself and he uses personal pronouns that illustrate that. The New Testament is, you've got plenty of examples of that. You can look through those on your own. Now, I'm taking a little different approach here, and, and this is why I wanted to give you those verses so you don't have to jot them down. But I'm taking the approach of lumping all three together and then talking about the different attributes that Scripture gives them. For example, all three, we're told by Scripture that all three are omnipotent, all-powerful Creator. Not only the Father, not only the Son, but the Spirit too, all three. The Father in the first one. We are the clay, thou art the potter, all of us are the work of thy hand. The second one is the Son. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Makes him a creator. And the Holy Spirit, which is one you don't think of, the Spirit of God in Job has made me. 
and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. All three are presented in Scripture as all-knowing or omniscient. The Father from 1 John. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The Son. Now we know that you, Jesus, know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Next, all three are presented as omnipresent or all present. The Father, 1 Kings 8. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. The Son in Matthew 28.20 Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the Spirit, back in the Old Testament, Psalm 139, Where can I go from thy Spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? Etc. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. The Holy Spirit is everywhere also, or is given that attribute of omnipresence. All three are, are explained in Scripture to us as being all-loving, or we would call that omnibenevolent. The Father, John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world. The Son, in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. And even the Spirit. Romans 15.30 Now I urge you brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the love of the Spirit. To strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. All three are called God in the scriptures. Philippians 1, 2, for the Father, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then here's one that sometimes we don't think of, but the Spirit in Acts 5, 3, and 4, the story of Ananias Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. I don't know how you can get much plainer than calling the Spirit God, the Son God, and the Father God. And this finally is a picture uh, of the three persons, a beautiful picture we have in Scripture. The Word of the Father uh, verbally thundering down in words that were heard. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit visibly descending in the form of a dove and, and Jesus raising up at his baptism. They're all three there. That's a picture of the Trinity in the New Testament. Any comments or questions? Okay. And still, he's with us. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he's still with us. His divine nature is still omnipresent even though his human nature is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But he's still the one no concern. And we will be like him. There you go. He's still the one the scripture refers to as Jesus, the Son, or the Lamb. Right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I know I know what you're saying. 
You're saying there may be an analogy in us because there are three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Does that some way reflect the fact that God is a trinity? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure it does, but, but, but you're right. Uh, I think when you think of uh, us being made in God's image, you need to, we need to recognize that first of all, God is a spirit. He's a perfect, the perfect spirit. So any image that we have of him has to be an immaterial image, not a material image, first of all. Second of all, it's an image that probably expresses itself, uh, I don't want to say this, uh, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. There's something about us that can relate to God. He, he He made it that way. But we need to also recognize that that image has been distorted and tainted, if you will, by the fall. And so it's not the image it was when it was with Adam, but is the image that will be there again for us, especially in the resurrection. Right. We, 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 we understand what love is. Because God is love, but we can never understand it like He, like His love. We, we know various emotions and, and we can relate to God in those ways, but, but God is totally other and He's perfect and, and, uh, we need to recognize there's a distinction there, but yet we reflect, we reflect that. In our best, in Adam we reflected it, and once again in the future we will reflect it. There's no one else like him, right? And we're going to talk about that more as we get on in this series, but there's something especially wonderful and especially unique about the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that more, but you're right. I hope that helps you with your question about our image. Right. But we'll be like him in a way that we certainly aren't now. No, we will never cross that boundary. I, I'm asking us to remember between creator and creature. We're always going to be creatures. Well, he sure did that, didn't he? Yes, he did. Awesome. Even though he had a body, right. And and I need one of those bodies. <laughs> I'm walking into things all the time. Okay, let's let's talk about something a little a little different here. Uh, the Trinity. Now some of this is just me, so Don, be patient. The Trinity accounts for the derivation of the of love. And let me tell you how I think that is. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He has been love from all eternity. That's part of his divine nature. Perfect love. But how could this be possible if God could ever exist without someone to love? In other words, a single person, if, God, if we view God as a single person... He's a single God. If we view him as a single person, you could look at him as the supreme narcissist, only loving himself. And let me let me tell you, uh, suggest this to you: If God is perfect, he is perfectly self-sufficient, needing nothing outside himself. If if there was ever anything that God needed to be more perfect or better, that would be a measure of his imperfection now. If he's perfect, he's perfect. He's not perfect except he needs someone to love, or else that would make him more perfect later than he was before. God does not change. He's immutable and he's perfect. So these are things you've got to keep in mind when you're trying to wrestle with things. Keep in mind some of the basics. That's right. There's a kind of love you would have for yourself, 
just just from a self-preservation standpoint. You, you may be right. Right. So the question, did God create humans so he could experience love? Was this the first time that God experienced a relational love when he created humankind? The triune nature of God explains why love is an innate quality of God, I think, in my view. The three eternal persons of the Godhead are in eternal relationship, eternal communion with each other. Three is the perfect number to experience the three, what I'm going to call the three types of love. Here's why I'm thinking that. In other words, to love, you must have another to love. To experience love in its fullness, you must be loved by another. And here's the one that that I thought was pretty cool. To experience love in its fullness, you must be able to love with another. Do you see the difference? Can you as a parent Feel the fact that you and your spouse together can share the love of a child, that that's a love that is neither one of these? To think that the Father and the Spirit can joyously love the Son, and the Son and the Spirit can joyously love the Father, and the Father and the Spirit and the Son love each other. And you can't do that with two it takes three. So, how does how do the how do Unitarians even explain any? How do they explain redemption? How do they explain salvation? How do they explain the fact that God is love? I, I don't know. It's just a mystery to me. But let's press on. Love is eternal because God is love. And it's rooted in the eternal communion of the Trinity. And that's amazing. Again, this is a a writer, Greg Kukul, explaining how the Trinity is a solution, not a problem. And I like the way he says part of this. The Trinity properly understood is a solution, not a problem. Why? Because if you believe in the Bible yet reject the Trinity, you're faced with some serious and unsolvable textual conflicts. There's only one solution that makes sense of all the data that we have in Scripture. The Trinity is the only way of understanding God's nature that holds all the scriptural data intact. That's why he says, and we should say, The Trinity is a solution, not a problem. We're getting a little short of time, but there's one thing that came up last week that I want to talk a little bit about. And as a matter of fact, Ron Manus has some handouts to uh, supplement this. He sent this, this article out. Can you start passing those out, Ron, or are they already passed out? If you want a copy, just raise your hand. Uh, because we're going to talk about analogies, because we got into that last week as we were using our own words to describe the Trinity, and people, and we often do say the Trinity is like this or like that, and we we look to nature to give some some example of to try and help us understand how the Trinity might in fact be. And this article I found real interesting, so I have. Uh, snatched words out of it and summarized it here. It's by Scott Clark, who's a professor at Westminster, California. And uh, he says, as we would recognize, that the desire to find analogies in nature for the doctrine of the Trinity is understandable. It's just understandable. But misguided. And I softened his words uh, I said, all illustrations of the Trinity end up 
in error. He said, all illustrations of the Trinity end up in heresy. <laughs> I wanted to just back that down just a little bit. Because <laughs> some of us are not heretics. <laughs> but we think in terms of those analogies. And, I, and all this is to do is to say, think, think twice about making analogies. And let's, and let's look at some of them and see what, what the issue is. He points out that the most common error with these analogies is modalism, which is a, a heresy from the early church fathers' days, which we will go into prob- probably next week. But, for example, here's some common ones. Ice, water, and vapor. It's all water. It's in three different forms, a solid form, a liquid form, and a gaseous form. That's a picture of the Trinity. But they can't be all three at the same time. What that is is taking water and having water present itself in three different forms. That's modalism. Right, but, it, but we, we experience it in three different forms, not three different persons. So it's not a good analogy, in other words. Well, there you go. It takes something else. It takes something else. But sun, heat, and light was, was a, a common one. from For centuries, that's been a common one. Mm-hmm. You'll see some in my presentation, but not on this slide, thank goodness. But sun, heat, and light, uh, you know, the, the sun represents the Father. The heat represents the Holy Spirit. The light represents the sun. But that's, that kind of thinking is modalistic. The heat, and the, the heat and the light are effects of the sun. And so, so there's something that's not right about it when you're thinking about the Trinity. Yeah, well, that's, that's better, though, than uh, three slices of pie. Well, <laughs> it is. That's better, than, except I'm still thinking about the multi-berry pie that he brought up with <laughs> All the berries are mixed together <laughs> from last week, yeah. Uh, one atom. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Emil brought this up. That a lot of people say, well, take an atom, for instance. A single atom is made up of a proton, a neutron, and electron. And a lot of... <laughs> but, again, that's not the Trinity... As a matter of fact, those are three distinct things that some other force has brought together. And so, for, for example, God. God can't... The doctrine of divine simplicity, maybe we'll touch on later. Uh, God is not composed of parts. He is simple in His being. There is nothing more fundamental than God. There are no parts that came together to make God. If, if there were parts more fundamental than God, that's what we should be worshiping. Or we should be worshiping who the composer was because somebody had to put the parts together to make God. Can something not God be said to make God what he is no so that that kind of thinking which I think is fundamental helps you see how these analogies really they all tend to fail in the end now they may be helpful I mean if you really wanted to try and use them with a child or something I guess it helps you get over a milestone or something but they're really not not really good Right. I think it was John Calvin that said, when God speaks to us in Scripture, using analogies and anthropomorphisms of whatever, he said it's like a parent lisping to his child. Lisping was his word for baby talk. And, and that's true. Okay. So though, that was a way of trying to use nature to explain the Trinity. So... If we look at the scriptures, what can be known about God from nature? Can nature 
show us the Trinity? Let's read this verse, Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, says Paul. For his invisible attributes, namely his power and his nature, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Men are made inexcusable by the fact that God can be known in his power and divine nature by what is made. That's what nature tells us about God. Not pictures of the Trinity. Paul affirms what can be known about God from nature. His existence and something of some of his attributes. That's all nature can tell us about God. And so we shouldn't try and press nature too far to find theology in nature. There's enough, there's enough of God in nature to condemn us, but not enough to save us. Paul teaches the Trinity explicitly, but he never teaches it from nature. Okay, it's 8.03. We're about out of time, but we should take some time for questions or comments. Anybody? Yes, sir. That's okay. I know it's it's it's. Believe me, I know. The more you the more you get into it, the more you're, it's, it's mind boggling. I guess he wanted to share himself with us and wanted to bring glory to his son. Remembering, however, that we weren't needed. He didn't need us. Anybody? Right. I mean, would you rather have faith? in the God of the Bible or faith in something that you don't see, can't see, and can't explain. I don't know how I don't know how unbelievers cope with the world and with with everything that they face. It boggles my mind. Let me just say in summary for tonight the doctrine of the Trinity is not a contradiction. The biblical data presents us with a triune God. The Trinity is a solution, not a problem. And our God subsists in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. I I pray that you will take those words which are spoken tonight and and, uh, filter them of all the the, uh, stuff that may not be right and, and... and bring to bear those things that may have a semblance of truth. I, I, it's a humbling thing to even stand here and try and talk about you. And so I just ask your blessings on us and your spirit to apply the truth to our heart and reinforce that which needs to be reinforced and clear out anything that needs to be cleared out. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.